0: listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and Will the Thrill. Can you dig that baby?
1: Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians and sometimes other things like right now. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride is Will the Thrill. Hello. Hey, he got a nickname. I did. I'm officially in the club. (laughs) Um, So I guess you guys heard right up top, we actually have a new intro for Will. We'll also have a new one for TJ2. Which, if you guys listen to the Christmas episode, you guys know that's my brother. But we have to bring him into the what twenty second century? What what century are in right now? He's got some catching up to do. He's got a little catching up to do. So, uh, we're we're working on it. But uh, this might be a, a a a trio. I almost said a three way, and I'm like, I'm not
2: doing that. Uh, are we doing phrasing? Is that <laughs> phrasing?
3: Yeah.
1: So I do want to thank. My good friend Johnny Rock for doing the two intros. He also did the original intro for the show as well, but he did do two new intros for us. And he is an incredible actor. He's based out of Louisiana and he is coming up in a he's just got the leading role in a new feature film called Go Fishing. Because of COVID, they don't know how they're going to release it. Uh, As soon as I get that information, I will relay it to you guys. But I would love if you would check him out in that movie. He is an incredible talent. And I just want to give him a huge shout out and a huge thank you. Again, his name is Johnny Rock. And uh, he's just incredible. And he did it on the fly. And he is just, he's perfection. And he's got such a cool voice.
2: And he's got that laugh at the end of the intro, which is just amazing. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And he, he does this great. You know, he's, he does a lot of voices and stuff like that, and he just has that great Wolfman Jack voice mm-hmm. that he just, like, volunteered for us. And, you know, I'm eternally grateful for him because it's just, it's it wouldn't be a show without his voice. So, thank you, Johnny. You're awesome. He's the voice of rock and roll heaven. Yep. And uh, so, today we're going to be talking about songs that are based on true stories. And the reason why we're talking about this is because I, I think we wanted a small break from just all the gloom and the doom and the sadness uh, that has been 2020 (laughs) it's just it's it's been if it were a food it would be black licorice
2: but I like black licorice so so no it wouldn't be
1: well what would it be no one likes black licorice you're the only person every every piece of black licorice in the world that's being produced today is being produced
2: for you and I'm honored thank you (laughs) I'm gonna go with something I think is universally just gets groans, and that's licorice-esque. Even despite circus my circus peanuts. No, those don't taste taste like licorice. Oh, okay. I was gonna say Jägermeister. Oh,
1: well, if 2020 was a drink, it would be a. It would be Jägermeister. What do you What do you call them? Jägerbombs. Oh,
2: God. Uh, no, that's even uh, no.
1: Oh, I figured Jägerbombs would be worse than
2: Jägermeister. Yeah, but the induction the the introduction of something else makes it. Almost palatable. And I said almost.
1: <laughs> uh, fair enough. Our next episode is probably going to be our heaviest episode. Uh, it's going to be the race relations and segregation within music, within the Jim Crow era. And Mr. Will is going to be taking that episode on. And then after that, we're actually going to be starting our episodes, our four-part series on people that passed away due to COVID. And then... You know, after that, we'll see where the episodes take us. But right now, we just we just didn't feel like we needed to focus on one person. So we just kind of wanted to give you guys a little bit of rock history and interesting things for these, these first four episodes back. And then after that, we'll get back to our single-person episodes. So today we're going to be talking about songs that are based on true stories. And what's interesting about this subject is that... A lot of times when you see a movie that says based on a true story, it literally might have one aspect of an event that they base it on. But when it's a song, it's actually, it seems like it's more valid. There's more, there's less at stake than a film. And there's more accuracy than movies claim to be sometimes. So we're covering, I think there's seven songs here. I realize you you
2: probably left one out, and you probably did it on a purpose. Which one? And that would be The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon well, Lightfoot. My,
1: well, you never bring it, that up in polite society. It is based on
2: a true event? <sighs>
1: it is one of the worst songs. And don't get me wrong. I like Gordon Lightfoot.
2: She said it. You heard it here.
1: I like Gordon Lightfoot. I don't care. That song is one of the worst songs ever. Anyway... <laughs> Um, And please understand, with some of these things, like my very first one, there's literally no way I can tell you the entire story. So I'm having to kind of give you guys the abridged version. And so please forgive me for that, because the first one is Waiting for the Worms by Pink Floyd, which is about the Nazi death camps of the Holocaust. So right, like starting right off the bat, there is literally no way... In a single episode of a podcast, can I explain to you the Nazi Holocaust? But what I will say is that there was this war called World War II in the 30s and the 40s. As we all know, guys, there, there was mass extermination. And for years, Jewish people and other, other people like the Romani, Gypsies, homosexuals were sent to forced labor camps and ghettos and then
2: is this the late 30s in europe
1: yeah <laughs> and in 1942 they were actually deported to extermination camps or or other kind of forced labor camps whereas like auschwitz was was a labor camp and a death camp
2: we went there on well, we didn't go on our honeymoon but we went uh when we visited europe we went to poland actually
1: yeah it was um it was one of the most important things that i feel like i ever made us do <laughs> i'm sorry um we, we were in Leipzig, Germany for our son's graduation, mm-hmm. and we decided that since we were so close to Poland, which was about, it's, it's about a six-hour drive. Well, that, it didn't turn out to be, but no, uh, that's no. another
2: story altogether.
1: There's like one road to Poland, <laughs> but we, we rented a car, we drove to Poland, and we went to Auschwitz, and it if you ever have the opportunity to go experience it, please do. Because it's one of the most important things that you can do. Is to just be in that space and exist in that space. And just close your eyes and just feel. And it was one of the most... I hate to say it, touching. But it was one of those moments where I I, I could feel the past choking me. And... It's overwhelming. It's incredibly overwhelming. And just the the size, the scope, the scale that they did things on were insane. And it was a machine. And so uh, Auschwitz had a Cyclone B. They would lead people into the gas chambers, drop the Cyclone B in. And I think it would take maybe seven minutes and then they would just go in and clear the bodies and put them into the the furnaces. And there were six camps that were purely extermination camps, and Treblinka was one of them, that they didn't actually think Treblinka existed because they had, before it, they had a chance to liberate it, they literally tore everything down and planted trees. And they didn't think that it existed, but they they found infrastructure like in the ground and then they found mass graves and things like that
2: well speaking of research on the second world war the hbo series band of brothers is probably at the top of things to see and oh my gosh the episode i'm gonna cite is your favorite episode nine why we fight fight is which captures sort of the discovery of this and the meaning of what it was and and they do a great job of sort of keeping it in that time frame instead of looking back with the knowledge we have now just imagine coming out of the woods and finding this cluster of buildings and there's barbed wire and there's people and you're not sure what it is and i think they just did a masterful job of catching the how these soldiers must have felt when they when they stumbled across this camp yeah
1: and like i said i'm not going to do a good job of explaining exactly what the death camps were but basically from like 1942 1943 Auschwitz itself, I, I focus on that because I've been there and I've seen so much about it. I've read so much about it. It started out as like a POW camp and for their their own prisoners. And then basically the commandant started pilfering stuff and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And they were killing on a daily basis more people than the plague. They, they could kill on an unimaginable scale. And they would do it without... Prejudice. If you were in the camp, you you were you had the ability to be killed. And I do. I really suggest you guys watch films like Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan, uh, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas is incredible. Oh, and my personal favorite film of all time, Schindler's List. We actually, when we went to Poland, we went to Schindler's factory and found my family name on the list, and I just freaked out. So. Um, yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's, that's a very, very brief summation of what happened, but we all know that there was, there was so much more to that, and so the song is actually from the 1979 Pink Floyd album, The Wall, and it precedes Run Like Hell and followed by Stop. At this point in the album, as you guys know, uh, The Wall is a concept album, and, They went on to create a concept film also called The Wall, and it is one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. It's a ride, it's a ride. It is a ride. At this point in the album, there's a protagonist named Pink, and he has lost all hope, and his thinking has decayed, bringing to mind the quote unquote worms. In his, halluc- in his hallucination, he is a fascist dictator. Racist outrage and violence uh, has begun in the, the song preceding it, which is Run Like Hell. The count in is, "Ein Schwein rein. I'm German for one, two, three, everybody. I'm sorry if my German is sucks. I am terrible <laughs> at most languages, so including, to lie to including English. I haven't quite got a, a wraparound on that yet. Um, in the beginning and the end, the crowns chant hammer, a reoccurring representation of fascism and violence in the wall. And if you guys have seen it, there's the the marching hammers. Isn't it Bob Geldof? I I don't know. Can you can can you uh, find that out for me?
2: Let me verify here. Yes, it is. Pink was portrayed by Sir Bob Geldof. Very good, Bear. I try.
1: I don't think I rem I remember the shaving part. That's Geldof. That's okay. That That is him. Okay. Well, thank you for that, honey. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> the song is a slow lending march in G major, beginning with David Gilmore and Roger Waters alternating calm and stringent voices, respectively. Uh, Waters takes over with an extended vamp on A minor. This is all music stuff, but basically he was hearkening back to the song Happiest Days of Our Lives, and... He concludes by saying, "All you need to do is follow the worms." Tony Tennille of Captain and Tennille and Bruce Johnson of the Beach Boys contributed backup vocals to the song. And the original plan was to have all the members of the Beach Boys harmonize on "The Show Must Go On" and "Waiting for the Worms," but that idea was scrapped. So, I am just going to play a little bit of "Waiting for the Worms." <laughs> Listen back, and you can hear the Beach Boy influence on the intro. It's, it's, it's cool, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the the next one that we got coming up is probably a story for the Deadheads, hmm. I think. But it's not actually the, the Grateful Dead. This is The Ballad of Casey Jones by Wallace Saunders about a 1900 train wreck in Mississippi and the engineer's heroic death. But I'm sure... That w- Most people don't know the Wallace Saunders version. It, they probably know the Grateful Dead version.
2: Oh, absolutely. It's very popular.
1: Yeah. So uh, I chose the Wallace Saunders one for uh, out of a hat. And the
2: dead took some liberties if you <laughs> read the lyrics.
1: Well, I don't believe there was cocaine. Uh,
2: chances are there. might have been. <laughs> there I might have been. I, w- I wasn't there.
1: Well, in the 1900s, it would have been acceptable. Possibly, yeah. I'm not a cocaine expert, but I think that for some reason that that, that was legal. Like, you put pep in your step or something. But anyway, Casey Jones was a real person. He was a locomotive engineer who became a folk hero after his death in a train crash in the 1900s. It was actually 1900. It was commemorated in a number of songs, including the the Grateful Dead one that we just talked about. According to legend, Jones died with one hand on the train whistle, and one hand on the handbrake. Born John Luther Jones in Missouri in 1863, the future folk hero moved in with his family as a boy to Casey, Kentucky, the town from which he got his nickname, Casey, oh. Casey Jones. As a teenager, he began working for the railroads and later moved to Jackson, Tennessee. And on April 29, 1900, Jones, then an engineer for the Illinois Central Railroad, arrived in Memphis, Tennessee, having driven a train there from Kenton, Mississippi. In Memphis, he actually found out that an engineer that was scheduled to make the return run that, that night was sick. And so he volunteered to take his place. And he was noted for his exceptional punctuality and scheduling. And he, he, what is the best way to say this? He put his punctuality over safety. Got it. Uh, there was always a degree of risk with his runs. Huh. But that actually wasn't a factor on his last journey. There are some disagreements about the sequence of events of the night of the 29th and the 30th. He was due to run the southbound passenger service from Mississippi to Canton, departing at 1135. Owing to the engineer absence, he had to take over that service throughout the day, and so he would be deprived of sleep. He eventually departed 75 minutes late, but he was confident that he could make up that time because he was driving what was called the engine known as the cannonball which was a 10-wheel engine number 382. Was this the Concord of trains? It might be. Approaching Vaughn at high speed he was unaware that three trains were occupying the station. One of them broke down and directly on his line. Some claim that he ignored a flag man uh, signaling to him though this person may have been out of sight on a tight bend or obscured by fog. All are agreed, however, that Jones managed to avert a potential disastrous crash through his exceptional skill at slowing the engine and saving the lives of all the passengers at the cost of his own. For this, he's immortalized in the Ballad of Casey Jones. I said the word immortalize.
2: Nice.
1: Oh, my gosh. So how did he die? Uh, basically, I think he kind of skidded into another train he was at the front of the train. But he was the only one who was killed? Yeah, he was the only, he saved all the other passengers. So basically, from the moment that the accident happened, a ton of songs came out about him. He was a folk hero. And there was a version of a tune that was performed on the vaudeville circuit in 1900, 1909, a pair of songwriters published Casey Jones based in part on earlier melodies, and it became a hit for various recording artists. The songs helped turn Jones into a folk hero, and his story was later dramatized on radio and TV, and in the 1950s, his house in Jackson became a museum.
2: Wow. So that's huh. the
1: story of Casey Jones. He was a real person, and he saved the lives of the passengers on his train. Wow, I actually
2: didn't know all the details of that story.
1: I'm I'm leaving out a ton of extra oh, details yeah, about great. how he saved them, and I'm—, I'm I want people to go and learn. (laughs) Yes. Like, find the story interesting and then go and learn. Learning
2: is fun. Learning is fun.
1: I love it. I'm sorry that I didn't do it until later in life. (laughs) Yeah. I missed that point in school, the whole learning part. I didn't
2: start learning until I got out of that place.
1: Yep. (laughs) So the song helped preserve the memory of Jones through the years in its 40-plus versions and enhanced Casey's legacy. Uh, to the extent that he has become something of a mythological uh, hero, kind of like Pecos Bill or Paul Bunyan. Mm. Books and pulp magazines about the railroad and its heroes help perpetuate his memory as well. Soon after, the first song was sung by a friend of Casey's named Wallace Saunders to the tune of a popular song known as Jimmy Jones. He was known to sing and whistle as he went about his work in cleaning steam engines. In the word of Casey's wife, Wallace's admiration of Casey was short of idolatry. He used to brag mightily about Mr. Jones, and even when Casey was only a freight engineer. But Sanders never had the original version copyrighted, thus there's no way of knowing precisely what words he sang. As the Railroaders stopped in Canton, they would pick up the song and pass it along, and soon it was hitting up the ICE line. Uh, But it was up to others with a profit motive to take it and rework it for a nationwide audience. Illinois Central Engineer William Layton, who um, appreciated the song's potential enough to let his brother Frank Layton and Bert Layton, who were vaudeville performers, sing about it. They took it and they sang it in theaters around the country with choruses added. Apparently, even they neglected to copyright it. So, no copyright yet.
2: Yeah, it's still floating around the vaudeville circuit, right? Yeah.
1: Uh, reportedly, Saunders received a bottle of gin for the use of the song. Nothing more was heard from him at this time, and he passed into history as the man who helped make Casey Jones an integral part of American folklore. All for a bottle of Beefeater? That's yeah. okay. Finally, with vaudeville performers, T. Lawrence Siebert—I hope I'm saying that name right, sorry— created the lyrics with Eddie Newton on the music, and it was published and offered for sale in 1909 with the title, Casey Jones, the Brave Engineer— as their intent was to entertain, it was hailed as uh, it was hailed on the cover of the sheet music for the greatest comedy hit in years, and the only comedy railroad song. Okay, this version was was stringently objected to by Casey's wife for making her appear to have been unfaithful to Casey. The offending lines reading "Mrs. Jones sat on her bed, a sighting just received a message that Casey was dying." Said, go to bed, children, hush your crying, because your papa's on the Salt Lake line. This is similar to the line, uh, the song Duncan and Brady. And she spent her remaining years refuting those lines. The devil hasn't shown up in 58 years. That's what she said. There's a lot going on there. They're, okay, I don't. I'm, again, you know, what we find funny today is not what they found funny 110 years ago.
2: That and I'm trying to figure out how something like this would happen today. Like the idea of this legend being passed along on, on TikTok? I mean, what's the what's the medium of the what's the equivalent of the vaudeville circuit today?
1: Uh creepypastas. Oh, okay, that's fair. Reddit. Mm. Um,
2: or 4chan, is that the one that's just
1: I, I don't even know. I think 4chan's gone now and now it's eight
2: Chan. Is that a joke?
1: I don't know. Oh. I know I actually think
2: you could be right. I don't know. I,
1: I think I'm right. I don't know though. Um, but I mean, like our internet history is kind of our vaudeville circuit like our youtube channels are our are, are vaudeville that's our entertainment that's people who have a different kind of platform and it's accessible to more people so that's kind of like how vaudeville was back then but now i mean it's kind of, okay so you know you guys might know i'm into makeup <laughs> and you know how jamie french one of my favorite makeup artists uh, did the, the tiny hands and the tiny face. Uh, she like the
2: eighties makeup. The yes, yes, okay. yes.
1: And then people were like, "You weren't the first person to come up with the tiny hands, or you weren't the first person to come up with the tiny face." You should give credit where credit is due. But it's like, how do you? Oh, I'm just how go, do you like, find the original person that did this and give them proper credit? That's that's kind of how I think it happened.
2: Statistically speaking, you're probably not the first one to come up with anything. <laughs>
0: no, nope. and
2: I, I don't say that insultingly. I say that because you know, like this, we're talking about artists who created something about a known incident and sort of their take on it. And that's what that's what keeps these legends going. Is you know, the take on it's not the incident itself.
1: Yeah. So I I looked up a couple videos on YouTube. And I think this is the closest I'm going to get. So here we go.
4: The brave engineer, Kitty Jones, was the rounder name. On a six-penny wheel, the boy he won his fame. The caller called Kipsey at a half past four. Kipsey and his wife at the station door. Mounted to the cabin with his orders in his hand, and he took his farewell trip to the promised land. Kipsey Jones, mounted to the cabin. Kipsey Jones with his orders in his hand. Kipsey Jones, mounted to the cabin. And he took me
3: farewell
4: trip to the promised land. Put in, Put in your, your water. water Shuffle in your coat, put your head out the window while the drivers roll. I'll run her till she leaves the rail. Caught a hourly hour late with the western mail. He looked at his watch and his watch was slow. He looked at the water and the water was low. He turned to the fireman and then he said, We're going to reach Frisco, but we'll all be dead. K.P. Jones, go to reach Frisco, K.P. Jones, but we'll all be dead. Katie Jones, gonna reach Prince Gold. We're gonna reach Prince Gold, but we'll all be dead Katie pulled up that Reno Hill. He took it for the crossing with an awful thrill. The switchman knew By the agent's moan That the man at the throttle was the Katie Jones. He pulled up within two miles of the place. Number four stared him right in the face. Turned it the fireman said boy you better jump father the two locomotives that's a going to bump Casey Jones, two locomotives c jones that's a going to bump hey jones two locomotives dead two locomotives that's are going to bump Casey said just before he died, There's two more roads that I'd like to ride. The fireman said, What could that be? The Southern Pacific and the Spanish. Mrs. Jones had on her bed of time. Just received a message that Casey was dying. say go to bed, children, and hug your pride. Cause you got another papa on the Salt Lake line, Mrs. Casey Jones. Got another papa, Mrs. Casey Jones. On the Salt Lake line, Mr. got another papa here, you got another papa on the Salt
2: Lake line. Okay. I've heard a version of that somewhere else, like, now I'm struggling to remember where.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess the offending line was, you have another papa somewhere, but... On the Salt Lake line, yeah. But the fact is, uh, she was, she never remarried, and she wore black... For the rest of her life. So I could see how you could be offended by that.
2: Yeah. So. It's been performed by The Grateful Dead and Johnny Cash.
1: Yeah. And because no one knows exactly what the original lines were, the version that we played was a version. It was not Wallace Saunders' version. It was a version of the song. So, but I am going to tell, I'm very excited because in this uh, episode, I get to talk about <laughs> two subjects that I know way too much information about and could literally start my own podcast on both of these subjects. And so here's my most exciting one. And then my second most exciting one, I'm, I'm glad that I have Will sitting next to me so he can tell me to shut up. But I'm going to talk to you about, D.B. Cooper, which is a song by Todd Snyder about the first commercial airliner uh, skyjacking in the U.S. history to not end in an arrest or death.
2: And it was never resolved, correct? And it was
1: never resolved. Please, please, D.B. Cooper, if you're listening to this right now, Dan Cooper, whatever, you know, I don't. I love you. <laughs> I just, I just want you to come forward because you can come forward now. The, the the Statue of Limitation is up. You are a folk hero. Look, I'm not saying hijack planes. Oh, for the love of God, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying uh, no one got there hurt. There was no damage. And I think that's yeah. why I, I, I like it, because no one got hurt except for possibly DB. But but even then, we don't know. We don't know. So pretty much it was on the afternoon of November 24th, so uh, it was Thanksgiving. Of 1971, and a guy calling himself Dan Cooper approached the counter of the Northwest Orient Airlines in Portland, Oregon, and he used cash to buy a ticket on Flight 305, which was bound for Seattle, Washington, and it was one of the greatest mysteries ever. He was like a super quiet guy who was wearing like a nice jacket tie, but had a cheap attache case. He was in his mid 40s. He was wearing a black tie, white shirt, ordered a drink. It was bourbon and soda. And he was wearing these big glasses, which is why if you see the the picture of... Do you know the brand of bourbon?
2: <laughs> Just thinking that's something you would know. <laughs> I'm
1: so sorry. He, he ordered the drink before the flight took off, so I'm not really sure. So it was about 3 o'clock when he handed the stewardess a note. And initially, the stewardess thought that it was he was trying to hit on her. And so she folded up the note, and she put it in her pocket, and she walked off. And a few minutes later, he called her back and was like, Ma'am, you want to look at that note? And so she went back. She unfolded the note, and it was like, ma'am, I have a bomb. And she walked back over to him. He opened up his this cheap attache case, and what it looked like was a bomb. The note said that he wanted $200,000, but it didn't specify what denomination it was. He also wanted four different parachutes, which is weird. That is odd. Uh, So she, she... Now, yeah. the plane's full of people, correct? The plane is full of people, and it's a holiday. And uh, But apparently, he was a gentleman. He was very nice. They call him the Gentleman Hijacker. And so they landed the plane in Seattle, and he let off all of the passengers. And there were only 36 passengers on the flight, for one thing. So it was like, this is
3: 1971.
1: Mm. It, air travel, I don't think, was... The same as it is now. I think it was a little bit more luxurious back then. It was like an event. And he exchanged those guys. He kept a couple crew members, and the plane took off again, and he set a course for Mexico City. Somewhere between uh, Seattle and Reno, Nevada, a little bit after 8 p.m., they noticed a pressure change in the cabin. And it was the aft? Is that what you call them? The aft stairs? The back of the plane? The back of the plane. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: The stairs... At some point, were lowered, and he parachuted into the night, never to be seen or heard from again. And that is just one of the coolest stories. I've in. And I'm sorry. So a couple years later, back in the in in the late 80s, I believe, one of the kids that was playing on the bank of one of the rivers actually found a bundle of the 20s because he had, since he had not requested the nominations. They gave it to him in 20s. So they're thinking what happened was he parachuted into the night. And it was odd because he took a parachute. When he parachuted, it was raining. It it was very inclement weather. You have to think it was 8 p.m., so it was really dark, Pacific Northwest. And he just kind of parachuted out. And they don't know if he lost the bags because they were too heavy. Or if he survived at all, if he got caught because they never found the parachute, they never found his body, and they only found a small amount of the money.
2: And there's a whole lot of nothing between <laughs>
1: that. Yeah.
2: Seattle and. Didn't you basically do that drive? Yes. There was just nothing? And it was.
1: It was yeah. No, no, no. It was beauty. Well, that there's... that drive up there is absolutely gorgeous because you've got the redwood forests and it's. It's, but it's
2: all it's wilderness. Gorgeous. Yeah. It's
1: all wilderness. I mean. That's probably the best place to find it, like the best place for him to parachute out. But like no one ever saw him or heard from him. And people have complained, people have claimed to be D.B. Cooper. And then there was a copycat uh, hijacking like two weeks later, but they caught that guy. (laughs) And I mean, it's a banana story. And again, I'm just giving you guys like. The bare bones story of this But it's one of my favorite subjects I just find it so incredibly fascinating Because during this time There were a ton Of hijackings And normally I think there was even a joke Something like uh, the Mexican Express Or I the Cuban Express Like they would hijack A plane from New York and, oh, and, and, route and route it to Cuba There was some kind of joke like that I cannot remember but But this was the only hijacking in history that no one was hurt, no one was killed, and that did not result in a an arrest. And I just, he is, I know it sounds weird to, like, hold up a criminal like this, but there's just something so incredibly fascinating about this. So please don't hate me, guys. There's a reason why this story has been put down in song and legend.
2: And I had no idea there was a song. So the one you're going to play, I, I actually didn't know about until you did the research.
1: Yeah, and my my brother loves this guy his name's todd snyder and he's he's got a small uh connection to db cooper uh, he's a songwriter with a musical style that kind of does and i hate this word americana <laughs> i hate this word it's alt country and folk in 2011 Newspapers reported that the FBI had a credible lead in the mysterious case of D.V. Cooper. And once again, the authorities were baffled about the identity and the fate of the man. And like, what? But the problem was when he went up to the counter, he bought the ticket as Dan Cooper, but they didn't require any kind of ID. It could have been anybody. You could have just given him cash, and there was no no line. How much things have changed? And then there was no security. You just walked up to the plane. You could smoke. You could, and he did smoke, actually. Uh, that was some of the evidence that they left behind was his uh, bourbon glass, his cigarettes, and he left his tie and his tie clip. And, oh, my God, I would love to have that in my collection of <laughs> weird things. And uh, and that that was the other thing is that the press reported it as D.B. Cooper. Something got lost in translation, but I think it was because he was in seat B and they took Dan Cooper and then Dan B. Cooper I think that's what happened.
2: But again, we've no idea if that's accurate or it, it's just no, all over his, the place. His name
1: could be William Hickey and he could be What? Your dad. Um <laughs>
2: would that shock you actually? <laughs> no, actually it wouldn't. No, wait, wait. I look at look at the picture. If you if you thin the hair oh. even more I think I gotta call my mom. Where was your
1: dad on Was it nineteen seventy one? Thanksgiving, nineteen seventy one. You gotta call to me when we're done here. And <laughs> it could be your dad. Could
2: be a very interesting family (laughs) follow-up.
1: If he is, i married into the best family ever. (laughs) So this is a quote. Although I was around when Cooper disappeared, my interest in him peaked with a great song about a hijacker by Todd Snyder. And this is uh, the article about the song. The best thing about Cooper, the the Cooper news, is that it gives me a chance to post one of my favorite Todd Snyder songs, aptly named D.B. Cooper. Todd Snyder is a singer-songwriter who tells great stories with his songs, and he's noted as one of the greatest influences as Ramblin' Jack Elliott, and it shows in his music and his presentation. The Washington Post recently reviewed Snyder's latest live CD, Todd Snyder Live. The storyteller explains that he might be the most likable man in music. (laughs) And after I I heard this, because I I played it uh, before the show, I kind of dig this guy, and I know my brother really likes him. Yeah, he's a big fan. Uh, the article reports that Snyder is one hell of a performer having built up a cult following thanks to the nearly 20 years of concerts that double as side-splitting storytelling sessions. Snyder's song D.B. Cooper from the CD, Happy to Be Here, recounts the story of D.B. Cooper fairly accurately, and he does combine a bit of poetic license and childhood memory to make an excellent tale an excellent song. In writing the song, Snyder perhaps found a small connection to D.B. Cooper, who began his strange journey at an airport in Portland, Oregon. On October 11, 1966, Snyder was actually born in Portland. And perhaps because the hijacking occurred in the 1970s, and the song was released prior to the events of 9-11, one accepts the tradition of making the outlaw hero a bit more than we might have at any other time. And I think that's true. Like, in a, if this had happened in a post-9-11 world... We wouldn't be celebrating this guy.
2: I don't think we can. I don't think it would have happened. There's no way those events would have played out that way.
1: Oh no! Oh no! No no no! Uh, I mean, we're jumpy now. We're jumping now. We're jumpy. Oh, we're jumpy. jumpy. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it like when I got on a flight, like I, I, I'm not a good flyer anyway. You know that. <laughs> yes, I do. Okay, so I'm gonna play, D.B. Cooper by Todd Snyder now. And sorry that I geeked out, but this is, this one. And the next subject, I'm not even joking, the next subject I have spent over a decade studying, and then Craig Mazin came in and destroyed my entire world. Okay, so here's
5: D.B. Cooper. Here's another guy from my hometown that, that, that made a name for himself. Hey. D.B. Cooper was 43 when we first heard his name. 47 miles away from where he fell down to his fame. He told me that the hardest part wasn't really jumping out of that plane. It was watching them lights all that night shine through the pouring rain. They had a man hunting that next morning like nothing I'd ever seen. I was only eight years old at the time. I was watching on the TV screen. They were saying he was never going to make it now. That daylight had set in. But later that night, they were shining those lights back down on that mountain again. Not far away from the City of Roses, they all watched those lights up through the rain. For D.B. Cooper. So the cops blocked off all the exit roads. Hey, they turned loose all of their hound They even dragged a river up a couple of times to see if he had drowned. With all those men working overtime, they swore they would bring him down. But a parachute and a few hundred dollars is all that they've ever found. Not far away. From the city of roses, they all watched those lights up through the rain. Now, some people say that he died up there somewhere in the rain and the wind. Other people say that he got away, but then his girlfriend did him in. The lawmen say if he is out there someday they're going to drag him in. As for me, I hope they never see old D.B. Cooper again. Not far away from the City of Roses, they all watch those lights up through the rain. Cooper
2: Again, no idea that song ever existed. <laughs> I did no clue, but uh, that's a delightful one.
1: Yeah, I like it because it's, okay, it goes along with kind of like the Portland vibe of so? music. Um, just like that interesting, introspective, storytelling mm. kind of quirk to it.
2: Okay.
1: Hey, we watched Portlandia. It's weird. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> I will say that that area is gorgeous. If, uh, if, if we have a chance to make it up there again, I would love to because that- To Portland? W- yeah, that whole ride is absolutely beautiful. Okay, so I kind of jumped the gun on telling you guys about how Craig Mason destroyed 10 years of my life, but that's because I discovered the story of Chernobyl
3: hmm.
1: about 15 years ago, and it was so incredibly interesting to me about the lies, the intrigue, the the secrecy, the fact that right now there is a town that's being taken back by nature, Pripyat. And I'm going to tell you guys a very, very brief story of Chernobyl, but I will say that there's a fantastic book called Voices of Chernobyl if you want to read firsthand accounts of The actual event, which is where Craig Mazin found a lot of his information from. And I read the same book. He read the same book. And then we talked about it (laughs) on Twitter. And I didn't realize that that he created the television series Chernobyl, which was one of the best uh, limited series I have ever seen in my life. Jared Harris is in it. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård is in it. It is a fantastic story hbo does it again yeah and uh they're they're pretty pretty true to life including like i because i was sitting on the couch like yelling at the tv as we were watching the special i'm like it didn't happen like that (laughs) okay and the thing that got me to tweet to craig Mason was i saw a guy on twitter say something about Craig Mason. And I was like, oh, I wonder if he's going to bring up, you know, uh, Vladimir Pontokovic. I cannot say (laughs) Russian names. I was like, you know, the photographer. I I pointed out I was like, I wonder if he's going to talk about this photographer that went in to Pripyat and Chernobyl after the meltdown. And he died. And he was buried with his camera. And the, this guy tweeted back at me. He was like, "We didn't really have time to tell everyone's story," and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> "And I looked and at that it, was Craig Mason. And it was Craig Mason. So I kept having conversations with Craig Mason, and there was a podcast that follows it. So uh, I'm getting way off track because <laughs> this is seriously like something I could talk about for days. But basically, uh, the Soviet Union was whole at this point, and Chernobyl happened on April 26, 19. 86 but it was built in the late 70s about 65 miles north of Kiev in the Ukraine and the Chernobyl plant was one of the largest and oldest nuclear power plants in the world and they were running a test and again this is the condensed version but a sudden surge of power during a reactor test destroyed unit four of the power station at Chernobyl and it released a massive amount of radioactive uh, material into the environment. Emergency crews responded to the accident, used helicopters to pour sand and boron on the reactor debris. The sand was a way to stop the fire and to try to cap the release of radioactive materials. And the boron was to prevent additional nuclear reactions from happening so it wouldn't cause like a chain reaction because this was part of four units. And it was reactor four that uh, exploded. And so there were three other reactors that it could have caused a chain reaction. But luckily, it didn't. Um, they kind of built this thing on top of it called a sarcophagus. But it's not enough. And it's going to degrade eventually. So they're going to have to build and keep building. And things went down into the soil. And it's a mess. But it's they closed off. The area within 30 kilometers of the plant, which is 18 miles, except persons with official business. And initially, the, the number that they put was that it killed 28 people of the site's 60, uh, 600 workers. Oh, that's, that's low. Yeah. Um, another 106 receiving a high enough dose to cause acute radioactive sickness. On the fire department, you know, rate right? Radiation sickness, excuse me. Yeah, the fire department. And that was, that's a heartbreaking story. That's like one of the first stories in the book, Voices of Chernobyl, where um, Ludmilla, this woman, her husband, is a first responder. He's a firefighter. And she's pregnant. And he went to go fight the fire and got radiation sickness. And she disobeyed rules and ended up absorbing basically all the <laughs> radiation from his body. And uh, she had a stillborn baby.
2: Well, the the, um, the fetus absorbed the radiation yeah. is not the issue. Yeah, yeah.
1: and uh, he he ended up passing. She lived. The baby died. It's uh,
2: is it is it's ing- the whole thing is which they do cover in the series, if I remember correctly.
1: Yes, she's one of the main characters. Um, which is tw- like that whole series. I'm just crying from beginning to end. I don't even know how you handle me. It's like it's six, outstanding. Yeah, it's six hours of me just openly weeping. Um, so they have this thing called the exclusion zone now, which um, Belarus, uh, the Russian Federation, and millions of inhabitants, including uh, Pripyat, are this. There's a there's a exclusion zone, and. You can actually go on tours now, and that's my dream vacation.
2: Mm, to go to Chernobyl, yeah. <laughs> I just want to go to Chernobyl. You wanted to go there from Poland, but A, the rental car company wouldn't let us go there, and B, it was like another 28 hours.
1: Yeah, but we'll, I'll make it there. I will make it there, I promise you, because I just want to see nature taking back what is rightfully theirs. <laughs> kind of shows you our place in all this, doesn't it? it? It does. It's like, you know, this 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 place was... Supposed to be the height of technology and power, and in four days it was completely empty, and it sits abandoned since 1986.
2: What's that show, Life After People, where it shows? The yes, yeah. love
1: that show, mm-hmm. where it shows how and and. But that's what it looks like. But they pointed yeah. that out in the series that mm-hmm. Chernobyl has is 40, uh, 86, I can't do math. Eighty-six to ninety-six. It was 1986. Yeah. So it's almost thirty years.
2: Thirty, almost thirty years. So
1: it's when they did it. I think it was like twenty five years when that show came on the air, and they showed what happened to a city when no one lives there for twenty five years,
2: and it's beautiful. And they were sorry. Ha- the math would be it'll be forty years in twenty twenty six.
1: Yes. Yes. So there was like a May Maypole Fest, Mayfest, May. There was supposed to be like a festival, and they had things like bumper cars and a Ferris wheel. And so if you Google Chernobyl Ferris wheel, there's this iconic photo Mm -hmm. of this Ferris wheel that was put up. And, of course, it's radioactive, and uh, no one should ever touch it. But it's just, there's so much beauty in that for me. So please go look up more information, because I I cannot tell you. I have, I literally have 10 years of research where I found stories about... The people that were involved, people that were moved out, people that uh, were actually there the night of the accident, and like maps of the exclusion zones. I, I just, I, it was, it was an, it was this it was this moment in time that fascinated me, and I couldn't, I could only find one song that wasn't uh, the Imagine. I think Imagine Dragons' "Radioactive" is that about Chernobyl? Or it's is not. That? Okay, it's not. <laughs>
2: maybe it could have been i don't know but it was hard to
1: find songs based on chernobyl but i did find one that was literally based on chernobyl (laughs) there there are there are other songs that are based on chernobyl there's one that that talks about how the sheets crack in the wind because people had hung up their laundry and never got the chance to take it down because they just left right they just left there's still food on tables they're they're it 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 is one of those things where just people got up where they were and walked out of this town. And they thought that they were gonna come back. They thought that they would just be gone for a little while. They'd fix the they'd fix the problem and then they'd come back. These people have never seen their homes again. And really? the song is called Red Alert and it's by Saxon. And they're an English heavy metal band which formed in nineteen seventy six in South Yorkshire and they were front runners of the new wave of British heavy metal bands, and they had eight U.K. top 40 albums in the 1980s, including four U.K. top 10 albums and two top five albums. So they were pretty popular.
2: But they they weren't as big over here, were they? I don't think so.
1: And I think they kind of got smeared over here. Hmm. Uh, The band also has numerous singles in the U.K. charts and success all over Europe and Japan, as well as some moderate success in the U.S.A. Okay. Um, They described their personal experience of the disaster in the track Red Alert on their 1988 album, Destiny, which was two years after the actual event happened. In a February 1988 interview with Kerrang!, which I tried to hunt down the actual article but could not find, the lead vocalist, Biff Byford, explained that the inspiration of the song was pretty much the first line of the song. We were on the Russian border the day that Chernobyl blew up.
2: Oh, wow. They were touring at that point, I'm guessing?
1: I guess they were touring at that point. I tried to find more information out. All those Saxon fans out here, let's hear from you. Yes, please. If you're a better researcher than me, I would absolutely love to even read the article that Biff uh, gave the interview in, which was Kerrang! But I I could not find anything about it, and it had the most personal touch on any songs about Chernobyl. And there are a ton of songs. If you Google songs about Chernobyl... There are a ton of them, including a David Bowie song.
2: Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I just pulled up a list.
1: Yeah, which the David Bowie song is Time Will Crawl, which he was inspired by the Chernobyl event. But there's not really a well-known song about it.
2: Yeah, Huns and Beaker. <laughs> oh, Okay. <laughs> Actual band name did Ghost Town. Give me another one. Uh, Delia and... Ukrainian artist. Municipal Waste did Wolves of Chernobyl. Yeah, not a lot here. Yeah, Imagine Dragons, radioactive. Yeah, which it's,
1: I don't think it's explicitly about Chernobyl, though. Time Will Crawl. Well, this
2: says, according to this, it is. And the internet is never wrong.
1: Yeah, well, (laughs) here we are. I'm going to play Saxon.
2: (laughs) Oh, Lincoln Park, Lost in the Echo.
1: Oh, interesting. Said it was
2: shot in Chernobyl.
1: And what was the video game?
2: Oh, uh, Call of Duty Modern uh, Warfare? Go, ghost ghost, something. I don't think it was a Ghost. It was a Call of Duty game. And ghost
1: Recon? Is that something?
2: That's a different series.
1: I think Ghost Recon. Did they go to Chernobyl? I think they went
2: to Chernobyl. No, I'm, I'm positive about the Call of Duty, and I can't remember if it's... I think it's Modern Warfare, the first one. When okay. You go to Chernobyl and you have a... What's it called? A Geiger meter, and yes, Geiger you have to Connor. be careful of radiation. And you see the Ferris wheel. It, it is a a good sequence. Yeah. And <laughs> when we watch
1: the movie Chernobyl Diaries, do you do you remember what me and Eddie did? No, I don't. Well, Eddie's just started laughing at me because like the Chernobyl Diaries is a found footage film starring the guy from um, Stuff My Dad Says
2: and Jesse McCartney and right? Jesse
1: McCartney <laughs> and.
2: Throw a dart at the Hollywood so, list. So,
1: but that's how I figured out he was on The Masked Singer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it it opens up. You know, they the, when they g- finally get to Chernobyl and they they pull up on the the Ferris wheel and I just went <sighs> and Eddie <laughs> full theater just goes shut up. Awesome. <laughs> so anyway, okay. So we're gonna play Saxon Red Alert. Yeah. <laughs> like that that does sound like the best encapsulation of the event it's chaotic it is loud it is scary
2: but it's very 80s it's extremely 80s metal yeah yeah well you could do an entire podcast on chernobyl alone i think i yeah but
1: number one it would just be me like, either geeking out or screaming. <laughs> and nobody wants that.
2: Two episodes of just that. Yep. And then actual content. Yeah.
1: Um, so the next thing that we're going to be talking about is Bob Dylan's The Tempest, which is about the Titanic disaster.
2: And that's another topic you could do an entire podcast on.
1: I know so much about just Titanic.
2: Just so you know, for our bedtime viewing, we usually have something involving disasters. That's only pick. <laughs>
1: Well, lately it's been the 1980s version of Unsolved Mysteries. Or training videos from the <laughs> 80s and 90s. I Okay, training videos from the 80s and 90s are so awesome. If you can find, like, just go on YouTube and look up, like, Wendy's training video. Pizza. Buster, yeah. It's so much fun. They have the best music. So, Titanic. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Do you know uh, anything about the Titanic, honey?
2: Uh, it was a boat. Okay.
1: No, it wasn't. It was a ship.
2: Yes. (laughs) I'm kidding.
1: For those who don't know, the Titanic was part of the White Star Line, and it sank in the North Atlantic Ocean in the early hours of the 15th of April, 1912, after striking an iceberg on her maiden voyage. Uh, It was under the command of Captain Smith, who went down with the ship. It was opulent. It was... One of the most luxurious ocean liners in the world. This was her maiden voyage. You had people like Aster, Ismay. You had these people that had owned Macy's department store outright. The Strausses. The Strausses. This, this was some of the richest people. And some of the richest people didn't make it onto the boat like J.P. Morgan. He
2: which was supposed was, to
1: go? Yeah, which was weird. I'm not saying there's a conspiracy, but there might be a conspiracy. Anyway, another thing that I absolutely love is conspiracy theories. But the Titanic wreck was a massive news story in 1912. And her, the wreckage wasn't found until the 1980s by a scientist named Ballard.
2: And it... What are you doing? You had mentioned opulence. So I looked up how much a ticket on Titanic would cost today. Oh, okay and uh a a simple ticket just to get on the boat would be it was a big a big range uh about $1700 but Does, the- is that like a third class passenger ticket uh it says first class would be about 1700 okay however many of the suites went for up to $50,000 oh. per ticket in today's money okay yeah. which was about 4000 and change back then.
1: Yeah, so you'd think that with the the amount of money that was spent, they would have taken precautions such as having enough lifeboats, but they said that it would look too crowded to have the lifeboats enough lifeboats to save everyone on board. But they're like the way that it was built with the water type bulkheads that went all the way to E deck, it was said that she could carry water in those four decks. If it had been a head-on crash...
2: It was labeled an unsinkable ship.
1: Yeah, and they thought that even if she suffered a fatal crash, she would have acted as her own lifeboat. But that's not what happened. The way that it went through and it punched holes in the side, it left her vulnerable to taking in more water. And again, this is something I could literally do a a (laughs) podcast on, and it would be 4,000 episodes... Because I study it, because my grandmother was born in 1912, and so I felt like I had a connection to it somehow, some way with my family. So yeah, I could talk so much about it. But again, uh, I think James Cameron did a great job with the film from 1997 called Titanic. Which is if if you watch that film, there are photos that existed that he actually incorporated into the film, like the little boy throwing the top and the little girl waving, and he took time and care, and it shows because he built it to 90% to scale. The gym looked exactly the same as it did, and and it was so impressive. And literally the first time I watched Titanic, I cried from beginning to end. I cried for like 3 hours and 14 minutes and beyond, like to the car, uh, back from the car to my, my dorm, and probably 30 or 40 minutes at home. I cried the entire movie because I got to see the Titanic above water. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: The explanation I just gave you guys is actually shorter than the song The Tempest by Bob Dylan.
2: By a lot At that.
1: Yeah. So, The Tempest is the 35th edition to the Dylan catalog, and this is the actual album. Mm, The album is called Tempest, along with the song being... Called. It was released on the fifteenth anniversary of the self-titled Bob Dylan album from 1962. Columbia Records chose September eleventh, two 2012, as the U.S. release date for the album. It was 11 years since Dylan had released "Love and Theft," and 11 years to the day since the World Trade Center attacks. On the 14th day of April, 100 years before the album came out, the Titanic hit an iceberg and it sank in the early. It sank early the next morning. The disaster, the Titanic disaster, like 9/11, was taken by many as like a hinge moment in history. The song Tempest is Dylan's version of the disaster, and it provides both the title of the album as a whole and the song, and it's clearly thematically central to the entire album. Hmm. The Tempest is Dylan's second longest song, the longest being the 16-minute Highlands on his longest album ever, which is an hour, eight minutes, and 31 seconds, and it has never been played live. And the song has 45 verses. Jeez. And and someone once said, if you listen to the whole song, you would rather be on the boat. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Oh, I can't laugh at that.
2: Unbelievable.
1: Dylan found some unlikely inspiration for the song, which was Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie Titanic. Like so many 20-somethings, Dylan wouldn't let go of DiCaprio's Jack Dawson. I'll never let go,
2: Dylan. Does life imitate art, or does art imitate life, people?
1: <laughs> As some backstory. The title track of the Eleven song album is about the singing of the Titanic. Speaking with Rolling Stone, Dylan said that he was motivated by the Carter family's The Great Titanic. Which I feel like that was like, Husbands and wives, little children lost their lives when the great ship went down.
2: Oh, I don't know that one.
1: Uh, my grandmother used to sing it to me. Oh. But I don't know if that's the same song, The Great Titanic. No clue. I was just fooling with that one night. He said, and I liked the melody. I liked it a lot. Maybe I got to appropriate this melody, but where would I go with it? Apparently, to James Cameron's 1997 classic Titanic. Mm -hmm. During the 14-minute song, DiCaprio even makes an appearance. Yeah, Leo, says Dylan. I don't think the song would be the same without him or the movie. So whether DiCaprio is actually on the song, uh, think Will Ferrell's random cameo on the Jay-Z and Kanye West track. Uh, for the song Paris, or just a reference, was not made clear in the Rolling Stone article. (laughs) So, okay, so here's the thing. The Tempest is, what, 13 minutes and... And 55 seconds. 55 seconds long. We're not going to play the whole thing, because I want you guys to listen to us. But we will play probably about three minutes of it.
2: We'll do a clip, yeah.
1: We'll do enough.
6: All the of the western town She told a sad, sad story Of the great ship that went down T'was the 14th day of April Over the way she rode Sailing into tomorrow To a golden age foretold. The night was bright with starlight the seas were sharp and clear Moving through the shadows The promised tower was near Lights were holding steady Gliding over the foam All the lords and ladies Heading for their eternal home the chandeliers were swaying From the balustrades above The orchestra was playing The songs of faded love The watchman he lay dreaming As the ballroom dancers twirled He dreamed that Titanic was sinking Into the underworld And so inclined He closed his eyes And painted The scenery in his mind Cupid struck his bosom And broke it with a snap The closest woman to him He fell into her land He heard a loud commotion Something sounded wrong. His inner spirit was saying that he couldn't stand here long. He staggered to the quarter deck. No time now to sleep. Water on the quarter already three foot deep. Smokestack was leaning sideways. Heavy feet began to pound He walked into the whirlwind The sky splinting all around The ship was going under The universe had opened wide The roll was called up yonder The angels turned aside Lights down in the hallway, flickering dim window, dead bodies already floating in the double
3: bottom.
1: Okay, I'm gonna stop it there because seriously, the four minutes that we just played that felt like the entire run of the film. Oh, that was not a good song, Bob.
2: Yeah, you can't hit a home run every time, can you?
1: Yeah, uh, i He know what he? I think he needs to stick to protest songs because that is that was bad. So speaking of things changing, good, great segue. <laughs> that was flawless. I am incre- flawless victory. I am incredible at segues today.
2: But it does get back to topics we've discussed before.
1: Yes, which is a song called "I Don't Like Mondays" by the Boomtown Rats, which was about a school shooting. And this was, I don't think this was one of the first school shootings, but I think because of the song, like, okay, I'll get into that in just a second. The Grover Cleveland elementary school shooting took place on January 29th, 1979 at a public elementary school in San Diego, California. The principal and a custodian were killed. Eight children and a police officer, Robert, uh, Robert Robb were injured and a 16 year old girl. Brenda Spencer, who lived in a house across the street from the school, was convicted of the shootings. Charged as an adult, she pleaded guilty to two counts of murder and a stall with a deadly weapon and was given an indefinite sentence. As of May 2020, she actually still remains in prison. Wow. Um, A reporter reached Spencer by phone while she was still in the house. Okay, and it, it, for those out there who are wondering how she got a gun, I don't, I think she was just living with her father, and what she had done was it was her birthday and she asked her father for a radio and he did not get her a radio, he got her a gun. He bought a gun for her birthday. How
3: do you Okay.
1: Um so she was reached by phone by a reporter while she was still in the house and uh the reporter asked her why she had done it and she reportedly answered, I don't like Mondays. This livens up the day. On the morning she began shooting at children waiting for uh, the principal, Burton Rag, to open up the gates. She injured the eight children, like I said. She killed Rag, I think that's how you say the, the last name, is W-R-A-G-G, Rag, as, oh, he, ra, as he tried to help the children. And she also killed custodian Mike Sukar, who was 56, as he tried to pull students to safety. A police officer, age 28, responding to the call for assistance during the incident was wounded in the neck as he arrived. Further casualties were avoided because the police obstructed her line of fire by moving a garbage truck in front of her house. So they actually saved everybody at the school by literally just pulling. And I've heard, for some reason, I thought it was a bus. So she
2: was just standing on the lawn?
1: No, I think she was actually just shooting from her window. Oh, jeez. Yeah. After firing 30 times, Spencer barricaded herself into her home for several hours while there, she spoke to telefo- by telephone to a reporter from the San Diego Union Tribune who had been randomly calling telephone numbers in the neighborhood. Spencer told the reporter that she had shot at the school children and adults because I don't like Mondays. She also told the police negotiators that the children and adults who shot were easy targets and that she was going to come out shooting. Uh, Spencer has been repeatedly reminded of these statements at her parole hearings. Ultimately, she surrendered and left the house, reportedly after being promised Burger King meal, a Burger King meal by negotiators. The police officers found beer and whiskey bottles cluttered around the house, but Spencer did not appear to be intoxicated when she was arrested. A day after her 18th birthday, she was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. She was diagnosed as an epileptic and received medication to treat her epilepsy and depression, while in a California Institute for Women in Chino. She actually works at repairing electronic equipment which is kind of interesting.
2: It feels in the lyrics of the song, yeah, it really yeah. is.
1: But uh which I I guess she's a now a golden girl in the prison sy- the, the prison system. She's now considered what's called a golden girl, which is I think you either hit age 55 or you've been in the prison system for more than 55 years. It's one or the other. Well, it sounds like she's not getting out. Well, she she gets Better blankets, more pillows, that kind of stuff. So it's not like, not like she's living high on the hog. But you're
2: still in prison. I mean,
1: but I mean, like, yes. think about it. Like, is she would she ever be fit to go back into society? Oh, that's,
2: yeah, I mean,
1: I mean, she was only sixteen when this happened. That's crazy. I mean, it's 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 tragic, is what it is. Two people lost their lives. Those kids are probably traumatized. She has. She's been in prison pretty much her entire life. Yeah. I mean, cheese and crackers. So the song, I'm sure everybody knows the song. I don't like Mondays. It's uh, the song by the Irish New Wave group, the Boomtown Rets, about the 1979 Grover Cleveland Elementary School shooting. It was released in 79 as the lead single from their third album the fine off the fine art of surfacing. The song was a number one single in the UK for four weeks during the summer of 79, and it ranks as the sixth biggest hit of the UK in 1979. Written by Bob Geldof and Johnny Fingers, the piano ballad was the band's second single to reach number one on the UK chart. Wow. According to Geldof, he wrote the song after reading a telex report at Georgia State University campus radio station wras on the shooting spree of 16-year-old Brenda Ann Spencer, who fired at the children on the playground. And uh, basically, Spencer showed no remorse for her crimes, and she gave her explanation for her actions as she's not liking Mondays. And Geldof had been contacted by Steve Jobs to play a gig for Apple, inspiring the opening line about the silicon ship.
2: That's where that line came from?
1: Yes. Wow. The song was performed less than a month later. So like these, the, the, the whole, the shooting happened, Bob Geldof got the telex, contacted by Steve Jobs, and the song was written and performed within a month of the event happening.
2: And it's crazy because I will say I've heard that song many times and I did not know the subject matter until we researched it. Oh, I knew. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I didn't. And I'd heard, I and mean, the song is so catchy and poppy and oh, you, wouldn't, you yeah. wouldn't even know.
1: yeah. Yeah, it's incredibly catchy. And, you know, it's got the.
2: Got the yeah, the
1: Yeah, and you clap along and you're like, oh, wait, this is terrible. It's about murder, yeah. uh, Geldof explained about how he wrote the song. I was doing a radio interview in Atlanta with Johnny Fingers, and there was a Telex machine beside me. I read it as it came out. Not liking Mondays as a reason for doing somebody in is a bit strange. I was thinking about it on the way back to the hotel, and I just said, the silicon chip inside her head had been switched to overload, and I wrote that down. And the journalist interviewed, she said, tell me why. It was such a senseless act. It was the perfect senseless act, and this was a perfectly senseless reason for doing it. So perhaps I wrote the perfect senseless song to illustrate it. It wasn't an attempt to exploit a tragedy. Just the perfect senseless act
2: and even the that that verse is there is no reason because yeah oh wow yeah. you break the song down it's incredibly creepy yeah
1: well we're going to we're going to hear it in just a second gildorf had originally intended the song to be a b-side but changed his mind after the song was successful with audiences on the rats us tour the spencer family tried to prevent the single from being released in the united states but of course it was unsuccessful in the years later gildorf actually admitted that he regretted writing the song because he he said it made brenda spencer famous ooh yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting because you think about the shooting, the Grover Cleveland shooting and Brenda Spencer. We might not know Brenda Spencer's name, but we know the story because of the Boomtown Rats. And again, we might not even know, like you didn't, the context of the song. But he feels like it made Brenda famous. Do we have songs about Columbine or Aurora or Pulse? I I feel like we have as a society backed off that because of scars. Like we we don't want to keep revisiting it again I, and again. I
2: I think the last time we saw that was September 11th and since then songs like that have really fallen off. They don't happen, you know. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious
1: is you know like the song where you and the world stopped turning. That was that was about September 11th and It's Alan Jackson, right? Yeah, and I think Ray Stevens also put out a song about uh, September 11th as well. But that's that's one of those like watershed moments that the entire world watched. But with Columbine, we don't do we have songs about Columbine? We don't because I think it's so macro that you don't want to invade a person's life like that. You know, do you want to write a song about the teacher that passed away at Columbine? Do you want to write a song about Sandy Hook, I, I feel like, I feel like that's almost untouchable. Like, that's taboo. Because it's so macro that it's on the world stage, but it it, it involves so few people, hmm. but touched us. Like, we, we we watched the news reports on Columbine. But I, I, I feel like there's something very, like, personal about that. And I, I don't know if people would shy away from it. Or... Or if they did do songs, would they approach the family and talk it out and 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 try to figure out how to do it respectively, Mm -hmm. with respect? So, um, all right, I'm gonna play the song now, and we'll be back in just a few minutes.
7: So clean, and it types to a waiting world. A mother feels so shocked, father's world is rocked, and their thoughts turn to their own little girl. Sweet 16, ain't that beachy keen? No, it ain't so neat to admit defeat. They can see no, no. reasons, cause there are no, no reasons. What reasons do you need? Oh, 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 oh. Tell, tell me why. why I don't lie. Don't. <laughs>
1: So that, that was I Don't Like Mondays. And it's interesting because if you don't understand the context, it is just a pop song.
2: Sure sounds that way, yeah.
1: And the way he was talking about, you know, like the, sk- the silicon chip inside her head. He was trying to make it sound like interesting and cool. But like, it's
2: dark. And just that implication of the chorus. Tell me why I don't like Mondays. Tell, tell me, like, me the why. The screeching... Tell me why, and then there's the calm delivery of I don't like Mondays. I don't like
1: Mondays. Oof. And, and that's that's terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. Okay, so moving on to the next song. Um, it is Long Hot Summer by the Tom Robinson Band, and this is about the 1969 Stonewall Riots in Greenwich Village, New York, in your neck of the woods. Oh, yeah. Well, this is really interesting because it's got some twists and turns that I think you'll appreciate, knowing like what you like. Ooh, let's hear it. Okay. What if I said no? Then this would be a really short episode. (laughs) Yep. Uh, The 1960s and the preceding decades were not a welcoming time for lesbian, gays, bisexuals, and transgender, which is LGBT, and then later on they added the Q plus Americans. Uh, For instance, solicitation of same-sex relationships was actually illegal in New York City. For such reasons, LGBT individuals flocked to gay bars and clubs, places of refuge, where they could express themselves openly and socialize without worrying. However, the New York State Liquor Authority penalized and shut down establishments that served alcohol to known or suspected LGBT individuals, arguing that the mere gathering of homosexuals was, quote-unquote, disorderly. I feel like
2: the implication of that would be extremely questionable. (laughs) Yeah. How do you, I mean, how do you prove, first of all, how do you prove anything, and second of all, how can you just say, yeah, your establishment is just basically shut down? It was the law. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it was
1: right, true, fair, or not, pardon me, fucked up, because it was. No, clearly. (laughs) Um, But thanks to activists' efforts, these regulations were overturned in 1966, and LGBT patrons could now be served alcohol. But engaging in, quote unquote, gay behavior, which was in public, which is holding hands, kissing or dancing with someone of the same sex was still illegal, which is crazy to think. That really is. That that was illegal in the 60s. Yeah. Especially in New York. Oh, cheese and crackers. That's ridiculous. Like, I can't wrap my head around that. Like, I just, I just can't.
2: I think about the implication that gives a film like Dog Day Afternoon, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it adds a whole other layer to it.
1: Yeah, it does. N- nice reference. Thank you. So th- th- those behaviors were still illegal. So p- the police harassment of gay bars continued, and many bars still operated without liquor license, in part because they were owned by the mafia.
2: Interesting. Okay.
1: The crime syndicate saw profit in catering to shunned gay clientele, and by the mid-'60s, the Genovese family— you know that mm-hmm. family? That I do. Controlled most most of Greenwich Village gay bars. And in 1966 they purchased Stonewall Inn, a straight bar and restaurant, cheaply renovated it and reopened it the next year as a
2: gay bar. What's interesting is the more I study the mafia and this does play into what you're talking about. It was above all a business. It was a money-making enterprise. And people like Michael Francis saw opportunity to turn a buck. So I think that was the Genovese family way of seeing a viable opportunity in the city at that point.
1: It was also very interesting because you don't don't really equate the mafia with being gay-friendly, but this makes you turn your head and go, wait a second.
2: Well, there's very strict rules that are usually along religious lines. You know, no women, no children, no drugs. I don't know what the stance would have been on homosexuality. I mean, did they just either look the other way because it was a profit opportunity or yeah you would think strict catholic upbringing would yeah or or was the mafia more progressive than we gave them credit for i don't know
1: the stonewall inn was registered as a type of private bottle bar which didn't require a liquor license because patrons were supposed to bring their own liquor okay there are a couple places out here like that aren't there
2: i think it depends on the licensing i know la is a very tough place to get a liquor license yeah so there's Ins and outs, depending on what you have.
1: Well, I know, like, when I was working in restaurants, you could bring your own bottle of wine, but there would be an uncorking fee. Correct, yes. So, yeah, I I don't know about how far that full bottle service would go. But club attendees had to sign their names in a book upon entry to maintain the club's false exclusivity. The Genovese family bribed New York's 6th Police Precinct to ignore the activities occurring within the club. Yeah, well, that
2: doesn't surprise me.
1: Without police interference, the crime family could cut costs on how they saw fit. The club lacked a fire exit, running water behind the bar to wash glasses, clean toilets that didn't routinely overflow, and palatable drinks that weren't watered down beyond recognition. What's more, the Mafia reportedly blackmailed the club's wealthier patrons who wanted to keep their sexuality a secret.
2: And what year was this? 66. Late sixty. okay.
1: Nonetheless, Stonewall Inn became an important Greenwich Village institution. It was large and relatively cheap to enter. It actually welcomed drag queens who would receive a bitter reception at other gay bars and clubs, which is weird because they would be marginalized amongst the marginalized.
2: Yeah, that's very specific.
1: Yeah. It was a nightly home for many runaways and homeless gay youths who panhandled or shoplifted to afford their entry fee, and it was one of the few, if not the only, gay bars that allowed dancing. Oh, wow. Raids were still a fact of life, but the usually corrupt cops would tip off the mafia-run bars that they were occurring, allowing the owners to stash the alcohol, sold without a liquor license, and hide the other illegal activities. In fact, the NYPD had stormstonewall Stonewall in just a few days before the riot-inducing raid. When the police raided Stonewall Inn on the morning of June 28th, it came as a surprise. The bar wasn't tipped off this time.
2: Oh, so they got busted with everything.
1: Yeah, no license and the dancing. What are we in, Footloose? (laughs) Jesus.
2: In New York in the 60s. It's
1: hard to believe. Armed with a warrant, police officers entered the club, roughed up the patrons, and finding bootleg alcohol arrested 13 people, including employees, and people violating the the state's gender-appropriated clothing stature. Female officers would take suspects, cross-dressing patrons, into the bathroom to check their sex. Oh, wow. How degrading. Jesus.
2: Yeah, it's hard to believe this is happening at this point in a major city. Yeah.
1: Fed up with the constant police harassment and social discrimination, angry patrons and the neighborhood residents that hung outside the bar rather than disperse became increasingly agitated as the events unfolded and the people were aggressively manhandled. At one point, an officer hit a lesbian over the head as he forced her into a police van. She she shouted to the onlookers to act, inciting the crowd to begin to throw pennies, bottles, cobblestone, and other objects at the police. Within a few minutes, a full-blown riot involving hundreds of people began. The police, a few prisoners, and a village voice writer barricaded themselves in the bar... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which the mob attempted to set on fire after breaching the barricade repeatedly. Whoa. Yeah, this is crazy. The Stonewall Riots, also called the Stonewall Uprising, began in the early hours of June twenty eighth, sixty nine. This is so, this is 1969. Okay. And it led to six days of protests and violent clashes with law enforcement outside that bar on Christopher Street. Oh, jeez. In the neighboring streets and nearby Christopher Park. The Stonewall Riots serves as a catalyst for the gay rights movement in the United States and around the world. Wow. Stonewall soon became a symbol of resistance to social and political discrimination that would inspire solidarity amongst homosexual groups for decades. Although the Stonewall Riots cannot be said to have initiated the gay rights movement as such, it did serve for a catalyst for a new generation of political activism. Older groups such as the Mattachine Society, which was founded in Southern California as a discussion group for gay men, had flourished in the 1950s. Soon, made way for more radical groups such as the Gay Liberation Front, the GLF, and the Gay Activists Alliance, which is the GAA, and now we have GLAD. Right. In addition to launching numerous public demonstrations to protest the lack of civil rights for gay individuals, these organizations were often resorted to such tactics as the public confrontations with political figures and the disruption of public meetings to challenge and to change the mores of the time. Acceptance and respect for the establishment were no longer being humbly requested but angrily and righteously demanded. The broad-based radical activism of many gay men and lesbians, in the 1970s, eventually set into motion a new non-discriminatory trend in the government policies and helped educate the society regarding this significant minority.
2: That's amazing. It really is. I, I remember hearing a quote today, and this is, of course, in a modern term, but I think it still applies. But they said, activism is more than a tweet. It's actually putting things into motion, which it sounds like this organization did for the benefit of their community.
1: Yeah, and again... I just want you guys to realize that what we're we're saying is such a small slice of the actual event. Of course, when it comes to something like the Stonewall Riots or Chernobyl or, excuse me, or the Holocaust or the school shooting. This is just
2: a slice of the story so that we can give you guys some context for the songs. There's no way we can cover it all. We just don't have enough time. And you could do yeah. an entire podcast on each one of these incidents, I think.
1: And We approach this with the utmost respect, and that's the reason why I literally spent probably around 13 years studying about Chernobyl or why I know everything about D.B. Cooper or why Mm -hmm. I'm well-versed on school shootings is because I have respect for these people that, you know, lost their lives or that fought for what they believed in. I have so much respect and— there's just not enough time to tell you the whole story <laughs> so please yeah. please know that we we have nothing but respect for these subjects and with that in mind the song which is by the Tom Robinson Band TBR they're a British rock band that was established in 1976 by singer-songwriter and bassist Tom Robinson In 1973, Robinson moved to London and joined the artistic trio Café Society. They impressed Ray Davies of the Kinks, which we've talked about the Kinks before, enough for him to sign them to his conk label and produce their debut album. According to Robinson, David's other commitments made recording the album a lengthy process, and after it only sold 600 copies, he left the band. Subsequently, when Tom Robinson's band were playing at the Nashville Room in London, Robinson saw Davies enter and sarcastically performed the Kinks' Tired of Waiting for You. (laughs) You know that song? Yes. Because I'm so tired, tired of waiting. I keep forgetting it's the Kinks, but yes. Yeah. The Kinks were very prolific. Oh, yeah. Davies retaliated with the less-than-contemporary Kink single, Prince of the Punks. About Robinson. And I love that the the, the little comment here. It just says, vague. Vague. I don't know if I wrote that or if someone else did. And
2: there you have it.
1: I was very tired when I was writing (laughs) this. In London, Robinson became involved in the emerging gay scene and embraced the politics of the gay liberation, which linked gay rights to wider issues of social justice. Inspired by an early Sex Pistols gig, he founded the more political Tom Robinson Band in 1976. The following year the group released the single 2468 Motorway which peaked at number 5 in the UK single chart for 2 weeks. The song re- alludes obliquely to a gay truck driver. And in February 1978, the band released the live extended play Rising Free which peaked at number 18 in the UK. And included his anthemic song, Glad to be Gay, originally written for a 1976 London Gay Pride Parade. The song was banned by the BBC. Huh. Wow. In May 1978, the band released its debut album, Power in the Darkness, which was well-received, which peaked at number four. Um, And then just a little bit more about Tom. I just thought it was really interesting. He co-wrote several songs with Elton John, including his minor hit, um, Don't You Want to Play This Game No More which peaked at number 39 in the U.S. about a, it was a song about a young boy in a boarding school who has a crush on an older student called Elton Song. Hmm. And it was recorded but not released until 1981 on the album The Fox. He played two songs live, Glad to Be Gay, and 1967, so long ago, during during June of that year, at the...
2: Secret Policeman's Ball. Yes, Secret Policeman's the first one,
1: <laughs> the f- 1979. So that was the yes. first one, yeah.
2: Because yep. then there was a Secret Policeman's other ball. <laughs> that goes back to another episode, the, yes. the benefit concerts.
1: We, I, I find more and more as we march on that there are so many connections. Like it's such a small musical world.
2: It's so That's part crazy. Of the fun.
1: Okay, so let's check out the song. <laughs>
2: Really like that song. Yeah, it's it's catchy at the same time. It's got that sort of lingering minor feel to it. I like it. Uh, yeah, it.
1: I dig that. And it's it's. Correct me if I'm wrong. Do you feel like that punk vibe, kind of moving in on that? How so? That driving guitar, the the short bites of lyrics, the driving message, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I, I hear that, and I sort of hear you know a little bit of almost like. Social Distortion, or um, Rancid, you know, those kind of bands. Even the Sex Pistols you hear a little bit.
1: Yeah. Well, I I did not want to end this episode on something super heady, but I don't want to tell you what the song is until after I tell you about the event.
2: Tell us about the event.
1: (laughs) Okay, so <laughs> the fall of Constantinople was, was the capture of the Byzantine Empire, and I've heard it Byzantine and Byzantine. Hmm. So I'm going to go with Byzantine because that makes me feel a little bit fancier. Uh, the well. Byzantine Empire's capital by the Ottoman Empire. The conquest of the city took place on the 29th of May in 1453. I think that makes this the earliest event that we've actually talked about on the podcast so far.
2: Yes, because the benefit for the Children's Hospital in London was 1796. Yeah, so I
1: win with the earliest. Uh, But the (laughs) game goes on. I'm
2: sure we'll find something from the 1200s.
1: It was the culmination of a 53-day siege, which had begun on the 6th of April in 1453. The attacking Ottoman army, which significantly outnumbered Constantinople's defenders, was commanded by the 21-year-old Sultan Mehmed II, later called the Conqueror, while the Byzantine army was led, by, was led by Emperor Constantine XI, after conquering the city, Mehmed II made Constantinople the new Ottoman capital, replacing Adrianople. The fall of Constantinople marked the end of the Byzantine Empire and effectively the end of the Roman Empire, a state which date back to 27 BC and lasted nearly 1,500 years. The capture of Constantinople, a city which marked the divide between Europe and Asia Minor, also allowed the Ottomans to more effectively invade mainland Europe, eventually leading to the Ottoman control of most of the Balkan Peninsula. (sighs) (laughs) You got it. The The conquest of Constantinople and the fall of the Byzantine Empire was a key event for the late Middle Ages and sometimes considered the end of the medieval period. The city's fall also stood as a turning point in military history. Since ancient times, cities and castles had been defended upon ramparts and walls to repel invaders. However, Constantinople's sustainable fortifications were overcome by the use of gunpowder, specifically in the form of large cannons and bombards.
2: Really? That's an interesting fact.
1: Okay, so why do I bring this up? Why do you? Because Istanbul is not Constantinople. Now it's it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. It's been a long time gone.
2: Constantinople.
1: Why did Constantinople get the works?
2: That's nobody's business but the Turks.
1: (laughs) That is Istanbul, not Constantinople. Is a 1953 swing style song with lyrics by Jimmy Kennedy and music by Nate Simon. And I know that sounds super weird to hear that it's a 1953 swing song.
2: And I bet that's not the version you know. We're going to get to that. We're
1: going to get to that. Um, The lyrics comically refer to the official 1930 renaming of the city Constantinople to Istanbul It also is a reference to other renamed cities Specifically the renaming of New York City from New Amsterdam Mm -hmm. Istanbul, not Constantinople Constantinople Was originally recorded by the Canadian group The Four Lads on August 12, 1953 This recording was released by Columbia Records As catalog number 40082 very important for you to know that.
2: Yeah, how artistic?
1: It first reached the Billboard magazine charts on October 24th, 1953. And in 1953, it peaked at number 10, and it was the, the group's first
2: gold record. Well, how about that?
1: And then um, a cover of it was released in 1987 by Big Muffin Serious Band.
2: <laughs> okay, that just, one I actually did not know about.
1: That's just an awesome name.
2: That really is.
1: And then the one that. Everybody listening to this podcast right now, if you can hear the sound of my voice, you probably know this version, which was in 1990. It was covered by They Might Be Giants. Oh, yes. There, it has been covered a ton of times with a, a lot of great musicians, including Bing Crosby and Ella Fitzgerald. Bette Midler and Santo and Johnny... But I'm, I'm sure when we grew up, we all thought that it was They Might Be Giants.
2: I did for years. And, years. And I'm
1: sure the first time that like my generation heard it was probably Tiny Toons.
2: I remember that episode to this day with the camels singing and everything.
1: Yeah. Actually, my brother-in-law, Bob, was the one that introduced me to not only They Might Be Giants, but he gave me the album Flood. In, I think, 91, and I was like, this is my awakening. But he also introduced me to um, Dean. To Dean? To Dean. Martin. Yes. Ah, yes. Uh, With Ain't That a Kick in the Head. I just (laughs) remember, like, chilling out in his backyard, which I'm pretty sure was made of AstroTurf. (laughs) And he had a martini, and he was singing Ain't That a Kick in the Head. Well, if you're
2: going to do it, I mean, go all in.
1: And he's a cool dude. Like, I look at him, and I'm like, "That that is how you adult. According to the impressive page about the song from This Might Be a Wiki, John Blansberg said about the song, we were recording the Flood album and I brought these Casio FDs. I sampled. I basically spent a couple weeks in my house recording every single thing I could figure out how to record and playing it back on the keyboard. And so all these things that you hear on Istanbul are samples except for the violin solo at the beginning and the trumpet in the middle. Huh. That thing that sounds like an accordion is actually a melodica that's been sampled. In the even old New York part, it's a Coke bottle being blown into a cord. That song's got some very unusual texture.
2: (laughs) Well, the Baby Giants were nothing if not inventive. Oh,
1: man. I I love Flood so much. It's a great album. Dead is a great song. I like just this, and not even like just Flood. But Dial-A-Song is great. I love The Sun, uh, but I like the faster version. I love New York City. I'm a huge nerd when it comes to They Might Be Giants. I think they're the second band that I've seen
2: the most times. I've definitely seen them more than any other band. Hands down.
1: I think, yeah, I think I've seen the band Everything more.
2: Than They Might Be Giants?
1: Yes, but only by like two or three times.
2: But to be fair, I, I was playing with a stacked deck because they would play every year in Boston when I was in college, and it was a free show, so why wouldn't I go?
1: Yeah, I got to see them do a (laughs) mini-concert at Virgin Records in, like, 2002, I think, because they had a kid's book that was coming out, or kids kid's album that was coming out, and they played on, like, baby instruments, (laughs) so you have, like, their drummer sitting behind, like, a baby set, And they've got, like, the little Casio keyboards and everything. It was really funny.
2: And they're still making music, aren't they?
1: Yep. Yes, they are. So the first version of the song I'm going to play you guys is going to be the Four Lads version so that you guys can hear the original version. And then, of course, we're going to close the show with the They Might Be Giants version. We have to. Okay. So here's the Four Lads.
4: Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople, been a long time gone, old Constantinople still is Turkish delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, not Constantinople, so if you they in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Even old New York was once new Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say.
6: People just liked it better that way.
4: Take me back to Constantinople. No, you can't go back to Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Why did Constantinople get the works?
5: That's
0: nobody's business but the Turks.
6: People just liked it better that way Take me back to Constantinople No, you
4: can't go back to Constantinople Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople
8: Why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks. Stumble
2: not like that song in the picture of them they look like they're straight out of the twilight zone if you look at those (laughs) four guys
1: you can find them online the monsters of dew on maple street
2: pretty much yeah
1: yeah so uh that is our episode for today guys thank you so much for checking this one out uh we hope that you'll join us next week when we are going to tackle one of the heaviest and darkest episodes yet uh in my opinion which is going to be race relations, and music within the Jim Crow era, along with segregation. So I do not pity you for your research that you're having to do for this one.
2: It's, it's quite a bit, and it's obviously some heavy material. So my only hope is that we will do it justice and do our best to, I guess, convey the facts.
1: Yeah, I, I actually handed this over to Will specifically because I know that if I tackled this, it would just come from a place of absolute anger because you guys have you know you've heard me talk about how how much segregation makes my blood boil when it comes to something especially as joyous as
2: music so um and i think we will see some positive lining to it all because through it i think music helped break down a lot of those barriers we will be seeing that on the next episode so come along with us
1: yeah so our social stuff uh, if you think we're doing an amazing job and you'd like to give us money, you can do that at patreon.com backslash heaven. You can come join us on Twitter at rockandrolllt. We're on Instagram at LT. Our Facebook is pod. Still not saying our website. Nothing has changed about that. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And you can check out other awesome Pantheon podcasts at rockandrollarchaeology.com. Guys, thank you so much. We will see you next week. Keep on rocking in the free world. Goodbye, Will. Goodbye. And hello, Johns.
8: Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, now Constantinople, been a long time gone, Constantinople, now it's Thursday light, on a moonlit night, every gal in Constantinople, lives in Istanbul, now Constantinople, so if you would date, in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul, even old New York, was once New Amsterdam, why they changed it, I can't say, people just liked it better that way, so take me back, Constantinople, no you can't go back to Constantinople Been a long time gone, Constantinople Why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the church New Amsterdam Why they changed it, I can't say You just liked it better that way it's Istanbul, was Constantinople Now it's Istanbul, the Constantinople Been a long time gone, A Constantinople Why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks.